Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Hang on. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's so funny. It gives you a recording countdown. Oh, okay. Um, but I didn't realize it would do that. I thought it would just start. Okay, Scott, we are recording now, and then we are ready to start our podcast in three, two, one. Welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. We are recording these episodes live from our remote offices. Please excuse cameos from canine colleagues, kids in class, and other unexpected moments. Dory, I feel like we are the queens of unexpected moments. Every <laughs> every episode we have I know. something. I have all of my alarms and school bills turned off, so <laughs> fingers crossed. I have a dog, and you never know what might happen there. So, uh, so if you all hear Katie, you'll you'll get to know my my pup. Um, <laughs> if you haven't heard it yet, our last episode was fascinating. All of that data that's living in caves. I can't believe it. Who knew? I know, right? Thank goodness. For the many people who work on preserving data while making it available to the masses for use in future research. Okay, so first up, we're going to talk about um, some data and current events, and we do this every episode. Um, so today, we want to talk about how mass incarceration policies end up causing crime in disadvantaged communities of color. Um, so let me say that again. In disadvantaged communities of color, Crime is caused by mass incarceration policies. Wow. And yeah, um, this comes from an Impress uh, Journal of Crime and Justice paper by Dr. Eileen M. Kirk, and it shows how heightened levels of prison cycling have influenced crime, um, particularly in a Boston neighborhood. So this paper is called Community Consequences of Mass Incarceration, Sparking Neighborhood Social Problems and Violent Crime, and it was published in 2021, so this is very new. And in it, Dr. Kirk uses the Boston data from a multi-city study, which is available from the National Archive of Criminal Justice Data here at ICPSR, and that study is called Predicting Crime Through Incarceration, the Impact of Prison Cycling on Crime in Communities in Boston, Massachusetts, Newark, New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, and rural New Jersey from 2000 to 2010. And this study provided Kirk with neighborhood social environment data, as well as crime and prison cycling data. Um, and I thought this was just fascinating. So among her findings, she says, quote, prison cycling is one of the strongest predictors of neighborhood violent crime in Boston. I kind of can't believe it. I had to take a moment to think. Yeah, about I'm still how. I'm still processing that myself. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, I th I just think it's fascinating how how much of an impact data can have on you know I I think that to some extent people may have already known this right, mm -hmm. but to have it laid out plain in front of you with data, mm -hmm. there's no arguing with that. This mm -hmm. is this is real facts. And I think that's what's so amazing about what we do here is that, you know, we have we have access to this data and you, listener, have access to this data. You can be finding this information too. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are interested in reading this article um, or doing similar research with that same data, 
You can find it in our bibliography of data-related literature. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes, but it's all available on our website. So, of course, we also have some new and updated data. Um, I want to highlight today the survey of consumer attitudes and behavior for both 2016, excuse me, June 2016 and May 2017. Um, if you haven't looked at these data before, they measure changes in consumer attitudes and expectations. Um, and these surveys have been conducted since 1977. So this is a really interesting way to study consumer behavior over time. Um, I'm only going to I'm, I'm going to stop there because we have an absolutely stellar interview coming up next. And I don't want to keep you from it. Um, but just so you know, links to these data are available in our show notes. And if you're a researcher, you can archive your data for free at ICPSR. Um, just send us a note and we'll get you set up or you can find it all on our website as well. Okay, I am really looking forward to this interview. So Dory, all yours. Thanks so much, Anna. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today, uh, we are really, really, really honored to invite two, uh, two people from our ICPSR staff. We have ICPSR Senior Data Project Manager, David Thomas. And we have ICPSR data curator Skylar Hawthorne. And they are here today to talk to us about some of our transgender data at ICPSR. Welcome, David and Skylar. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, thanks. We talk about uh, what makes the data stories that we tell great stories. And so that will be the first question that I ask as we think about these two data sets, what makes them a great story to tell? So I think what makes these a great story um, is part of the uniqueness of these data. And you don't want to call it rarity, but I guess, honestly, that would be an accurate description. As we think about uh, data, and uh, Skylar and I have talked about this a few times too. Like we think about data, we think about how questions um, are asked, uh, just like the demographic questions and also what populations tend to be missed out in representation. And so these particular data um, serve as one form of representation for a population that uh, we've always had but we haven't always seen. Yeah, for really the first time, his, historically, transgender people have been left out of data. The amount of binary gender questions is appalling, they, and they exclude transgender people. So it's been really hard to gather data on the transgender community, but these studies have paved the path for that. What would you say um, make these data unique? These data are truly groundbreaking. Back in 2008, the National Transgender Discrimination Survey was the largest study ever conducted on transgender Americans. It had 6,450 respondents. Its second iteration, the 2015 US Transgender Survey, shattered that record with 27,715 respondents. 
And okay, so that's big, but it's also important to note it's novelty. Before these studies, there was hardly any data on transgender people. So these studies created the first 360 degree picture of discrimination against transgender and gender non-conforming people. It's provided the data that policymakers and legal advocates need so that they can press the case for equity and justice. Have you seen some interesting uh, publications so far, either before the data came to ICPSR or afterward? Yeah, there, there have been many data-related publications, uh, f- 54 for the U.S. Transgender Survey, to be exact, which, David, you know better than me, but 54, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? That, that's a lot. I mean, also, if you take into account that, so for the Transgender Survey, uh, the National Center for uh, Transgender Equality, right, first put out these data. And they were distributing these data through their own systems. And so, um, you know, one of the things that has happened then is so you have pre-ICPSR and post-ICPSR publications. But what you also have are, um, this is these data are basically the data, right? So not only will you see publications, have we seen interesting publications, we look forward to additional publications publications as well because um, because of the structure of the data and how these data are disseminated everything like that right you have to go through certain processes because we put those in to protect uh, the population um, being being surveyed you know othering is such a strong thing and we've seen it in all sorts of different research of the importance of comparing within within population, um, to having within population comparisons. Um, so you're not just comparing uh, to a cis population and seeing you know, a transgender population or individual as the other. You're saying like, oh, this group of humans has diversity like this other group of humans and like every group of humans. And this is the population that oftentimes on most surveys has to select other to the gender question and what's what's more othering than having to answer other to that question there's so many binary gender questions that aren't inclusive of the transgender and gender non-conforming community amen to that what were some surprises that you encountered along the way uh, either in acquiring or curating or disseminating these data well The results were surprising, at at least to most. We already knew that the reality for transgender people, it's, it's harsh, but this study elucidated the extent of that. You might have heard the statistic that over 40% of transgender people have attempted suicide. This was the study that found that. It's the highest rate of suicide amongst any population that The average rate is just 4.6%, a ninth the transgender rate. Other surprising statistics, to use just one adjective, are that 59% of transgender people actively avoid restrooms. 8% do so to the extent of developing kidney or urinary tract problems. Can you imagine holding it in while there's a bathroom near you because you're afraid of how people might treat you in that bathroom? and holding it in to the extent that you develop health ramifications? Nobody does that, except except for transgender people. 
Or how about how 1 in 12 trans people get kicked out of their homes? Or how 1 in 6 have to leave their school due to severe mistreatment? Or how 1 in 2, 1 in 2 have been verbally harassed in the year prior to the survey just for being transgender? The most marginalized community in the country, transgender women of color. At the intersection of racism, misogyny, and transphobia, Transgender women of color experience compounding ramifications of discrimination. Compared to the general population, Black transgender people are three times more likely to experience police violence, four times more likely to be unemployed, five times more likely to be homeless, and, and nearly half attempt suicide. But the worst statistic doesn't actually come from these data. It comes from police reports. Multiple Black transgender women are violently murdered every month. That's multiple murders ev every month. And, and that's why we have a Transgender Day of Remembrance. Thank you. I just have to take some space to honor everything that you just said and absorb those really, really sad statistics. What were some successes that you encountered along the way? When you talk about lessons learned, um, one of the lessons learned and one of the also one of the benefits um, was for me, it was very personal because it was a broadening of perspectives. Um, I've been doing this a while and the way I was looking at disclosure risk and respondent protection has changed uh, since being involved with these data. Um, and, uh, ICPSR has had to make some adjustments too, broaden our thinking. Um, when you think about, um, harm to, when you have to consider harm to a population, um, as in addition to harm to respondent. So David, you already talked about, um, disclosure risk or uh, potential harm. Um, as one challenge. And Skylar, you talked about uh, just making sure that it was released, uh, you know, in time as another challenge. Are there any other challenges uh, that, that you like to mention with these data? Yeah, so for me, the disclosure risk review was also challenging, but in a different way. So we, we obviously value the safety and privacy of respondents. And in this process, we review every single open-ended answer for potentially disclosive information and redact it accordingly. Like one person answered, privacy isn't important to me and my name is redacted. Well, not all responses are as easy or humorous to read through as that one. In these transgender data, there is an open-ended question about discrimination and the answers absolutely broke my heart. I just couldn't believe what these people had been through, what, what transphobes had put these people through. I'm transgender myself, so I could relate with many of these responses, like getting kicked out of a bathroom when you just need to pee like everyone else. But for but some of the responses were were unfathomably abominable. They caused me to cry. There I was working on my computer, breaking down crying multiple times. It's, it's one thing to see the statistics, like how a third of transgender people experience discrimination from a healthcare provider. That's awful. 
but it's another thing to actually hear the story behind the statistic. But let me share one such story from the survey. I was consistently misnamed and misgendered throughout my hospital stay. I passed a kidney stone during that visit. On the standard 1 to 10 pain scale, that's somewhere around a, a 9. But not having my identity respected, that hurt far more. Thank you for sharing that, Skylar. What would happen if these data were lost? If these data were lost, I mean, we don't get that story, right? We don't get the story Skylar just shared. We don't get the the feelings of, that's a, the negatives are hard to do. So I'm gonna flip that and say additional values of these data. Um, by having these data, right, we're not only representing, you know, the transgender population and those people in it, what we're also doing is exposing the non-transgender populations to the reality of, of, people's, of people whose experiences aren't like ours, right, of people who maybe Maybe an individual doesn't think they know a member of the transgender population. And so when you don't think you know someone or you don't see the everyday, it can be a very different experience about thinking about their humanity, right? But when you have data and when people can point to things and say, well, this, this happens and this happens, how would you feel if you were in that situation? right i mean the the going to the bathroom is is so important because it's so every day right i mean like and yet an everyday experience was trying to be legislated and people were people were you know like saying you know people were bringing up all these you know notions of things that can happen not based on data not based on experience I don't know, based on fear, but even then, you know, I don't know, but it's much harder to deny. If you're going to deny someone's experience and someone's reality, it gives other people, if you're going to just be steadfast in that, this, these, these data allow other people to say, well, I saw these data or I heard their support. That's not true. Right. And so, and it honestly, it's not, this is like, for me, this is a theory based on like almost any, you know, minority population by whatever demographic. The role of the members of the transgender population, just in the same way of, you know, people of color when it comes to racism. So when it comes to transphobia, I think the role of the transgender population is not necessarily to change minds, but to survive and live the best lives they can. Um, it's the role of the cis population to just not be jerks. Well, at a minimum, right? But then also to go out and, and see the other, see the difference, and then embrace it and not make it the other. Instead of what would happen if we don't have these data, which is an important question, 
all that can happen with these data. Um, all the good that can happen, all the conversations that don't happen that are hurtful, all the ideas that don't get formed because we already know those are incorrect. You know, that kind of information, I think, is powerful as well. Are there any other transgender data sets that you want to highlight today? Yeah, TransPOP from Harvard, Columbia, UCLA, and the Fenway Institute. This study is truly revolutionary. It's the very first national probability sample of transgender people in the U.S. So for, for all the listeners who don't have a PhD, a probability sample selects participants at random. This way, everyone has a known and equal chance of getting selected. As a result, the sample is more representative of the general population. So TransPOP, being the first probability sample of transgender people, will provide a very accurate representation of the transgender population. And this will be crucial for designing evidence-based public health and policy interventions. I'm really excited about these data. I'm currently working like 40 hours a week on them, and hopefully they'll, they'll be available at ICPSR by the middle of May. How can listeners find out more about any of the data sets that we talked about or contact you? Oh, anyone listening is so welcome to contact me. I'm, I'm an extrovert, so I really hope that people do. My email is skyd, S-K-Y-D, at umich.edu. Okay, last question. Although Scott might move this to the first question. Um, what's your favorite thing to have for brunch? <laughs> I love cooking eggs, um, especially with a whole bunch of spices. Let's see. Obviously, salt, pepper, um, chili powder, paprika, cumin. I think it's delicious. Everyone I've ever cooked it for loves it as well. So, yeah, I'll say heavily spiced eggs. Like you want some sort of thick slice smoked bacon um, and a thick slice French toast. If you can't get French toast, then a good waffle. But that same sort of powdered, I don't like syrup. So powdered sugar, you know, some sort of fruit mixture. Um, and I really do like tea. Um, yeah, I think David, we're going to go was, with that. That was the best answer and most elaborate I could ever imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, okay, I, I can picture everything that he's talking mm -hmm. about. Thanks, Dory. Um, and as always, if you are listening to this episode at a later date, you can always visit icpsr.umich.edu to see our current job listings and any upcoming events. Um, all of that is on our homepage on the left side under events. Um, we want to give a special shout out for two nomination opportunities. First is for our council, which is the executive committee for ICPSR's member institutions. Our council sets general policy for the consortium, um, which if you're new to ICPSR, we are a consortium that is made up of hundreds of member institutions around the world. And so we're requesting suggestions of persons with the experience and ability and wisdom to serve on our council. And more information and the nomination form for that can be found on our website. And our second nomination request as part of our mission to support the social and behavioral sciences 
ICPSR presents awards every two years to individuals who have distinguished themselves in their service to the social science community. So please do send in nominations for anyone you work with or anyone you've been inspired by who has made an impact in the social and behavioral sciences. And again, you can find those nomination forms on our website. And Dory, I I was just thinking about um, the person who received our award for this in 2019, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Raj Chetty, gave just the most absolutely inspiring um, and moving presentation about economics and disadvantaged communities and how, you know, how economics sort of affects us all. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, is also available on our YouTube, isn't it? It is. It's in our uh, biennial meeting playlist. Very cool. So maybe we'll include that in the show notes as well. Okay. um, So our listeners can get a a sense of what those uh, awardees have uh, have accomplished. It's so, Mm -hmm. I keep using the word inspiring because I am so inspired by these people, but it is really inspiring to see what can be done with data and how it can really change, it can change people's lives. Yep, that was a really good uh, presentation by Raj Chetty. Uh, I just kind of remember some of his visualizations and how he talked about basically where you, you know, show the data behind where you start out in life, how that can affect where you end up. So, yep. Yeah, yeah. And isn't that interesting thinking about how, thinking about how the, uh, these connections. So Dr. Chetty was talking about, you know, where you start out and where you end up in life. And then also Trent Alexander in one of our previous episodes mm-hmm. was talking about, you know, generationally looking at census data, where families began and where they might have migrated to. So it is so interesting to see what stories can be told mm-hmm. uh, with these data. And all of these data are at ICPSR. Yep. Yep. Good. Thanks for reminding us of those uh, really, really good resources that we have. Okay. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for being with us. For links to data and everything else that we talked about today, you can visit our show notes, which are at icpsr.umich.edu. And they may also be in um, whatever app you're using to listen to us. Uh, Check that app. There may be show notes in there as well. And if you aren't already, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to say thank you, as always, to the ICPSR membership. This podcast would not be possible without the ICPSR members. That's right. And also, you can get in touch with us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu, or emailing us at icpsr-podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at umich.edu. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch.